bless the Lord. Let's just ask God's blessing upon the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that your hand would be extended towards us, that there would be an outpouring of your love, your word, your anointing. Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Help us to have great confidence in the scriptures. Help us to, Lord, value and esteem the word of God. And Lord, even more necessary than daily food, Lord, that we would consume the word of God, that we would make it a priority in our life because, Lord, it is indeed the word of truth, the word of God. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask right from the outset, we ask for your blessing and your anointing upon everything that's said and done. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would minister grace and love in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. And amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Diane. You're probably wondering what the barber shop's doing up there. I'll, I'll tell you in a moment. <laughs> I want to make a couple of statements uh, before we get going and, and a little bit of a recap of what we looked at last week. And uh, the first thing I want to say to you is I believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, the, the infallible, inerrant Word of God. You know, that's really important that we, we as believers today take that position. I believe that the Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen. Hallelujah. And so God's word becomes the final authority in everything that, that we do in all matters. And so uh, that's the stand we're looking at. We're looking at how important the scriptures are and some of the amazing things. Wasn't last week amazing that, that uh, some of the things that, that Job actually pronounced, it was really quite strange. It's going to go over a couple of them, won't go all of them, just a very brief recap. Um, and in Job 38 and, and uh, sorry, 26 and verse 7, we see that amazing statement that Job said that the earth was suspended upon nothing. I just, I can just imagine what the other guys were thinking when he prophesied that, you know. The earth is suspended upon nothing? Come on, you're joking. You know, how can that be? It seems like an illogical statement. But there, back in the Old Testament, the oldest book in the Bible, in fact, the oldest book in the world, um, made the scientific statement that the earth is suspended upon nothing. Then we looked at the, the fact that in Job 38, 7, how the stars sang. And for years, that was interpreted as poetry. And, uh, you know, very nice that uh, it's poetry. Um, but we saw that the, the, that Hebrew word sang is Ranan, and Ranan actually means to emit a sharp, piercing, strident sound. And uh, with the, uh, it's quite a, a phenomenal statement that the stars would make that kind of sound, you know. Has anybody heard any stars lately? No, I didn't think so. Why, why did Job make this ridiculous statement? It would, it would seem, certainly to everybody in his day and age, that this was a ridiculous statement. It's only been with the advent of modern science that we understand that the stars do make a sound. And we remember we, we looked at uh, in Corinthians, it says that star differs from star. In other words, every star makes a particular and individual sound. And um, the amazing thing was, with the discovery of the radio telescope, each star now is uh, tracked and, and uh, verified and identified by the sound that it makes. Much like when, when somebody 
and phones you, you, you know them well, they don't have to say, hi, this is Robbie, because you recognize the voice, you recognize the sound. And so exactly the same way, each star has an individual sound. And this was only discovered when they discovered radio, um, uh, with radio telescopes. And so uh, the incredible thing was that every sound actually harmonized. And so there you have each sound making a, each star making a different sound, harmonizing together. And um, the, the, who knew that stars did that? Joe, thousands and thousands of years ago, he said the stars sang, they, they emitted the sound. And so what we saw is that the, star, the stars make these individual sounds that harmonize and become God's orchestra. You know, they, 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 they're there and, and make these glorious sounds. And it's quite amazing. So uh, we, we saw that that was verified by science, but stated in the Bible nearly 4,000 years ago before science ever knew it was there. Then we saw that in Job 38 and 31, we looked at the astrophysics of gravity, and we were looking at, at God's challenge um, that uh, can you break the, the seven stars and the Pleiades, uh, and, and can you break that gravitational pull? And we saw that that uh, was um, a demonstration of the wisdom of God. Who knew that the stars actually uh, had gravitational pulls? Certainly, that's an amazing statement for the Bible to make, which was written 4,000 years ago. Then we looked at, looked at the fact that uh, in Job 36, 27, it talks about the hydrological cycle or the water cycle. And uh, that was only discovered in modern science in the 16th century. But way back in, in, in the book of Job, it's very clearly uh, delineated there, unmistakably. So that was interesting. Then we looked at the, the science of isostases. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, we saw uh, Dr. Bernard said that, that, that isostases is the balance between land masses and water and how it affects the rotation of the earth. And we saw it, how very clearly Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 12, actually uh, said that he weighed the, the hills and the balance and the mountains and the scales. Uh, and so if the, if, the word, if the earth wasn't in balance, you'd be in a car with, it, with its uh, wheels out of balance, you bounce over the road like this. Imagine that multiplied millions of times uh, with the earth being out of balance. We'd be bouncing around here, falling water. We couldn't have any kind of fellowship unless the, the earth rotating in space was balanced. And we saw that Isaiah talks about the science of isostasies from the balance of the earth. So um, it's amazing, you know. We, we said that science is always changing its mind. You read you read any science book from 50 or 70 years ago, it's way out of date. They've changed everything. Uh, science is always in a state of flux. They're casting out old ideas. They're casting out uh, you know, old theories that didn't work and trying to come up with new ones. But when God speaks, we said that the, the Bible wasn't a scientific book. It's a love letter to you and I. Um, but when it makes scientific statements, it's never been proved wrong. Isn't that wonderful? It has never been proved wrong. Absolutely incredible. And we saw, uh, as, as we bring our recap to a close, we, we talked about uh, Dr. Michael Gillian, uh, from, who was a Harvard uh, professor, and he had a PhD in physics, mass, and astronomy, so three PhDs. And he was once asked, uh, does science discredit the Bible, God, or religious faith? If anybody should know, he should. And he said, absolutely not. 
And I love what Dr. Morris, the president of Creation Research Institute, said, for in the end, Scripture will stand. Can you say amen? amen? In the end, Scripture will stand, rightly observed and interpreted. There can be no conflict between science and faith. Hallelujah. Praise God. Science and the Scripture. So, why do we believe in the Bible? Because of its scientific accuracy. Remember, I said to you last week, we've only just scratched the surface about the scientific statements that were made. And we could go, we could do an, an, another couple of weeks just going on, on the scientific evidence alone. Um, but I think that um, last week's science lesson was enough. Uh, we're going we're to look at some different things this morning. But uh, why do we believe that the, the, the Bible? Because it's scientifically accurate. You know, other other books, religious books, make make that claim that they're the word of God, but when you examine them, they have statements in there that just don't line up with modern science. They, it's ludicrous. Uh, I don't want to be too harsh, but the Bible is the only book that, when it makes a scientific claim, it has never been proven inaccurate. And so, why well, believe uh, the Bible because it's a scientific accuracy? Because it's supernatural insights, it's divine truth. Science is only now catching up with some of the things like our substances. Uh, we can have an unswerving faith in the scriptures. Can you say amen? We can trust the word of God. Hallelujah. Okay. So today I want to look at a couple of other things. Um, I hope you'll find them interesting. I want to look at, at, at medicine. And although I'm not a doctor, I've been doing I've been doing some study. And I want to quote a couple of things that a couple of doctors that I have found. And it really shows how God knows what's going on. He created us. He knows what, what we, we made of and how to, how to operate in our life. And so um, I want to talk to you about blood, the liquid of life. I like that in the statement. I hope it's not mine, but I thought that that's pretty neat. We'll have that one. So blood, the liquid of life. Um, blood is an amazing thing. You know, it has many mysteries that even today science hasn't explored the, the, the full knowledge of the blood. You know, it has mysteries and capabilities still to be explored. In the 21st century, doctors can actually do blood transfusions. They can draw it. They can pack it. They can store it. They can ship it. They can sell it. You know, but we don't understand everything about the blood. What we do know about the blood is that it is the key to life. In the past, uh, ignorance of the blood, uh, blood's value has caused learned men to do some very tragic things. For instance, in the Middle Ages, even up until the 19th century, doctors believed that you got sick because you breathed in vapors. It was all the vapors fault, you know. And so the solution was to, and that sort of poisoned your blood. And so they, they would put leeches on, on the victim, the patient, I'm not sure which we should call that, but um, you know, they, they gave you leeches and in the hopes that the leeches would draw out the bad blood uh, because they, they recognized that the, the blood was really the issue. And then they'd often open up the veins uh, on your arm here and they would bleed you in order uh, to remove the bad blood. And uh, it was kind of uh, interesting to see. Um, Okay, so one of the, the amazing things that, that I came across was that Dr. Jeffrey points out that, are you ready for this? There are 120,000 kilometers of veins in a human body. Some of them are microscopic. Most of them are microscopic. 
but 120,000 kilometers of plan. When I saw that, I thought, my, my heart just sank. I said, Lord, we are fearfully and wonderfully created. That's an amazing miracle to stack that much mileage into this little frame. You know, not so little. Okay, I know what you think. Don't be mean. But, you know, it, it's quite a, a miracle of, of, um, of, of God to pack that much um, rain into a human body. And so when, that, when you got sick, where you went to was the barbershop of all places. Not to get a haircut, but they would bleed you. And so uh, in, in Europe, they, they didn't have the blue stripe. They just had the red and white stripe. And, of course, the barbershop in, 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 uh, in Europe, uh, the red represented the blood and the white, the bandages. In America, they had to go one step further. They made it red, white, and blue. Um, and so, again, the red was the bandage, the blood, the white was the bandages, and the blue represented your veins. Um, and so, you would, when you saw that sign, you could go on to the barber, because he had the sharpest knives in town, and they would open your veins, and they would bleed you of your bad blood. This was science back then. Okay, but the problem was um, that how many you know George Washington, the first American president, that he fell victim to this. He got sick and they bled him and he didn't get better. So they bled him again and he didn't get better and he bled him again. Guess what? He died. He died. He died because they bled him to death, getting rid of the bad blood. Thousands of years before this legal, um, lethal practice of bloodletting was conceived. Mankind was told by God that the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's not, it's not bad, it's good. The life of the flesh, is a, that's an amazing statement because up until quite recently, poor old George Washington thought he had bad blood and he had to get rid of it. You know? And today, uh, when, when you go to the doctors, uh, what do they want? Aha! Every doctor, they have blood sucking. <laughs> nice people, they do try and help. But you know, you go to the doctor and they want your blood. So it becomes very important. Why? Because your blood work says so much about your life. And I was amazed as I began to look into this, uh, just how much the, the, the blood could tell me. See, blood tests uh, can determine your risk of certain diseases. And, um, you know, they can also tell you if you've been on, on medication, how effective that treatment has been. Uh, can tell you about your liver function and other things. Uh, the blood reveals your cholesterol level. How many high cholesterol? None of you. Praise God. <laughs> Brenda, put your hand out. Keep your hand out. We'll pray. In Jesus' name be you. Amen. Good hand Yes, well done. I love you. It is. Amen. Amen. But you know, the blood actually tells you about even more about your body. It can tell you about your diet, your metabolism. Uh, it can tell you if, if illnesses are present, if you have HIV or anemia or cancer or coronary heart disease. Uh, it's all revealed in your blood. Isn't that amazing? Your blood is like a, 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 a passport to your life. Um, so today, we don't drain it. In fact, if you have leukemia or kidney disease, they will give you a blood transfusion. They will give you blood because they recognize that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so it's, it's a life-giving thing that we don't drain it away from people. We now give them blood. So how did Moses 
know nearly 4,000 years ago that life was in the blood. It's an amazing statement, you know. When it took medical science or science and uh, the medical community thousands of years and to say thousands of lives uh, to discover this truth, you know, here is scientific evidence that God knew what was best, that the Bible is inspired. He said the life of the flesh is in the blood. God knew, again, thousands of years before science. I love that. Okay, now I want to uh, just uh, talk about something else, uh, uh, circumcision. Um, all the guys winced, I know, but it's, uh, it's in the Bible. We're going to talk about that. And God says to, to Abraham, uh, you and I are going to make a covenant. You know, it's going to be a, a, a lasting covenant. It's going to be a powerful covenant. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan for an inheritance. Uh, and it's going to be yours for you and your descendants after you. And he says in Genesis 17, 11, he says, you are to undergo circumcision, and that will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was the mark of obedience to the covenant, okay? Genesis uh, 17, 12, God says further, for the generations to come, every male among you who is, to be, uh, who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from foreigners, those who are not your offspring. Every male baby of eight days old must be circumcised. It's kind of interesting timing if you think about it. Eight days, you know, I might have thought on the first Sabbath, you know, the first week or the first fortnight uh, or the first full moon. Why the eighth day? It seems a rather peculiar timing. It's interesting. The Arabs also practice circumcision, and but they, they circumcise on your 13th birthday. Um, and so uh, that, that's the way they do it. But God says, no, you've got, to, you've got to circumcise on the eighth day. So why specifically did God give them this instruction to circumcise on the eighth day? It's rather an odd number. But it really reveals God's knowledge, his insight into us as human beings. And really, again, offers us proof of the scriptures that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. So. The day of circumcision is of extreme importance. Did you know that? It's really important. Uh, any wound in a, in a hot, primitive uh, environment is likely to become infected and possibly cause death if it doesn't heal quickly. Bacterial infections are the most common cause of sepsis. And if you have sepsis, one in three people the world over die uh, if you have sepsis. And so... Uh, that, that comes from an infection. Nomadic people are particularly susceptible to infection because of their nomadic lifestyle. Doctors have only recently discovered something, that the human body requires prothrombin, vitamin K, and platelets uh, to cause the blood to clot. Uh, this is a relatively recent discovery. Uh, when when uh, the, a baby is born, the presence of uh, thrombin is about 90%. Uh, 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 high point is uh, after that, it drops down to like 30%. You know, prothrombin is one of the, the uh, ingredients that clumps the blood. So after three days, you've got about 30% of prothrombin in your blood. But it begins to rise uh, after the third day. Prothrombin levels increase dramatically until day eight. Isn't that interesting? 
day eight. The eighth day uh, it is the highest it will ever be in that child's life. And uh, so it doesn't matter how long the man lives, both prothrombin and vitamin K are at their peak on the eighth day. Okay. So it becomes really important that we see that, you know, uh, and it's about 20% higher than normal than, than on the first day of life. And so that is absolutely medically the best day for circumcision because your prothrombin and vitamin K are the highest they have ever been in your life. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. You think, what slide is it going to show? But remember, this is, this is a medical thing. So uh, this is the best day for circumcision. Uh, okay. So this is a medical slide. So please be prepared. Look away if you're squeamish. Okay. This is the medical slide. Okay. Okay, okay, it wasn't circumcision, it was vitamin K that we were talking about. Okay. So, uh, that, that really is a, a, a thing that causes blood clotting in, in, in a child. Did you know that vitamin K is not present when the baby is born? It develops between the fifth and the seventh day and actually reaches its zenith on the eighth day. And so both prothrombin and vitamin K are at their peak on the eighth day, the exact day God said you need to circumcise your child because we have the absolute best chance of, of healing and, uh, and not Isn't that amazing? I think so anyway. Okay, even if I'm talking to myself. Okay, you guys are on holiday, I know. All right. So how did Moses know about that? Because remember, Moses was the guy who wrote the, the, the first five books uh, of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch. How did Moses know that it was eighth day was the, the important day to circumcise? I believe God knew and impressed upon Moses by inspiration and showing that there is more to the Bible than just human intellect. There's more to the Bible. God actually uh, said to, to Moses, make sure that they are circumcised on the eighth day. This is amazingly accurate medical information. And I believe cannot be accounted by human ingenuity. Amen? Not certainly not in the ancient world. They knew nothing about this. But it proves divine oversight. And it remains the only reasonable answer for the wisdom of God. I love it. What about the bubonic plague? We've all heard about that. Okay. And uh, you know, the bubonic plague or the Black Death, whatever you want to call it, was the most devastating pandemic in history. Uh, depending on, on estimates that you read, um, there were tens or hundreds of millions of people who died from bubonic plague. Some estimates say between 75 and 200 million people died of the Black Death. That's between 20 and 60% of Europe's population. Entire towns and counties were wiped out with no survivors. Can you imagine the devastation that the, the Black Death actually caused? Renowned doctors of the time had no cure. They sat helplessly by and watched their patients uh, die, and then finally succumbed themselves to the Black Death, and they died too. And so it was really uh, incredibly difficult. In the 14th century, they had no idea of sanitation, germs, microbes, or even how diseases were transmitted. They had no idea of quarantine. So 
You know, when people died in, in Europe, they often bring the body in and put it on the kitchen table. And you know, that, and that's what they were doing during the Black Death. They, they would, the person died, they they bring the body in and into the household, and um, people would come and mourn. What an ideal way to transmit the bubonic plague! And so they had no understanding of quarantine. They had no understanding of, of this thing. Uh, so uh, it, it's really quite a, an interesting setup. So while science and medicine could do nothing. Church leaders wisely look to God and the scriptures for guidance. I mean, you know, that's always the best word of call, hey? God, I don't know what to do. Let's get back into the word of God. There's an answer to your problem in the word of God. Can you say amen? Oh, come on. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, okay. So uh, it's very interesting. Dr. Jeffrey says, amazing examination of the details Lord found in the books of Numbers and Leviticus reveal an advanced system of control of infectious diseases. Did you know that? It's there in the scriptures. Okay. In Back in the day, priests were also doctors, and uh, they examined the patient and prescribed uh, treatments, many of them like quarantine or medical isolation, to prevent the spread of these diseases, unknown before this time. But here, back back. Thousands of years ago, the Bible was talking about, about these things. And in fact, I, I, I will read just Leviticus 13 and verse 46. Um, I believe that this is one of the verses that proves that God understands everything and proves the inspiration of the Bible because God wants to protect his people. Amen? Okay. So look what he says. Leviticus 13, 46. As long as he has the affection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Isn't that the basis of quarantine? That's exactly what quarantine is. You live alone and you live in isolation. And here it is found in the scriptures uh, and, 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 and telling us what to do. You know? But you know, even if you did that, you lived alone and you were in isolation, when it was time for you to come back into the community, there were still other things you had to do. Okay? And uh, after quarantine, you, he was still under uh, strict medical supervision. And when he was pronounced uh, cured from the, the, by the priest, he still had some things to do that uh, remained uh, before he was accepted fully into the community. In Leviticus 14.8 talks about this. The person to be cleansed must, listen to this, wash his clothes Shave off all his hair, including his eyebrows, and bathe with water. Then he'll be ceremonially clean. After this, he may come into the camp, but he must stay outside of the tent for seven days. On the seventh day, all this is repeated again. He washes his clothes, he bathes, he shaves, and then he's pronounced clean. Now that is hygiene. That is that is knowledge that actually it had been applied at the start of the bubonic plague would have been dramatically successful. In fact, uh, as we'll see uh, as as you go through the Bible and study, uh, it's very interesting to note that 213 of the of the 613 biblical commandments found in the Torah are detailed medical instructions. 213 out of the 613. So one third of all God's instructions are medical instructions because God wants to ensure his people keep healthy. Isn't that amazing? 
Interesting statue uh, about the ebonic plague. The truth is, do you know how the ebonic plague actually uh, stopped? It's only when people uh, and the priests started saying, hey, listen, we need to quarantine. We need to wash and keep people uh, hygienic um, and, and, and separate them from, from the rest of the community. So this statue was erected in Vienna and is dedicated to the victims of the plague. You can see them falling down dead over there. And the work of the church fathers who helped stop the plague. It was the application of these biblical principles that stopped the plague. Now, if they had started at the beginning, maybe we wouldn't be talking like 200 million people if we'd been following God's commandments in the first place. The Bible says in Psalm 81 and verse 13 and 14, it says this, If my people would listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, can you hear God's the cry of God's heart saying, if you'd only listen, if you'd only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. God wants us to be obedient, not because he, he is strict, but because he wants to bless us. Because the out of obedience comes the blessings of God. And everyone say, Amen. This sounds on fire this morning. Praise God. So again, you know, amazing medical facts that um, were approved thousands of years before modern science actually came. So our Bible is very trustworthy. It's never been proved wrong. I want to look at another area, prophecy, for example. And again, there's just so much that I could have uh, uh, shared on this to, to prove the authority of scriptures. That God knows the beginning from the end. Amen. He is the Alpha and the Omega, or the first and the last. He knows it all. So the truth is, no one but God really knows the future. Can you say amen? In fact, God uses this as a challenge to the heathen. He uses it as a challenge to all those who would claim to be God. You want you know you claim to be God? Declare the future to me. That's God's test. You know, because nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, um, it's really quite a, a challenge, and we're going to look at that challenge. But Dr. MacArthur says prophecy is one of the strongest demonstrations of divine omniscience. Can you say amen? If you can see something has been prophesied uh, hundreds of years before it happens, and then it becomes fulfilled exactly as the prophecy said, you've got to you've got to conclude. Hey, there's a divine mind behind the scriptures behind prophecy. Okay. Think of it this way. Could any of you predict who's going to be the prime minister of New Zealand in 40 years' time? That's only just 40 years. God tells things you know, tens, hundreds, and even thousands of years before they happen. And you know what? The incredible thing is that they all come to pass exactly as he said they would. Isn't that amazing? And so I want to look at a couple of things uh, this morning. I want to show you that, that test that God gives um, to those who claim to be God. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 41 and verse 21 through 23, uh, we, we'll see God's challenge. Okay? Isaiah 41 and verse 21. God says, Present your case, says the Lord. 
Set forth your arguments, says the king, Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us the former things, what they were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we can know that you are God. So this is God's test for, for, for the scriptures. He said, I am God Almighty, and I will declare things ahead of time so that you may know that the Bible is a trustworthy document, that I'm not just blowing smoke. You can trust the scriptures. Amen? This is God's challenge. He said, I declare things that have yet to happen ahead of time so that you may know me and trust me. You know, I love what Dr. Barnett says. He says, all, of all the other religious writings, only the Bible dares to predict the future in any great detail. His statement was this. God wrote this book as a self-authenticating revelation of himself to the skeptics. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's the challenge God lays down when, when he can show you the, the future uh, before it just happened. And, and there, there's so much that we could look at this morning in this area. And I, I've shared some of them in times past. Uh, so I want to look at something a little bit different. Um, but, you know, no other religion dares to make these outstanding uh, prophetic uh, statements. You know why? For the same reason, nobody wants to buy the 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. <laughs> nobody wants that book. Or the revised version, 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. <laughs> why doesn't anybody want to buy it? Because detailed prophecy can be proven to be authentic. And, and so this is why God actually puts detailed prophecies within the scriptures okay so um you can validate and check them and only the bible only the bible has proved to be accurate in this regard all other religious books fail this test but the bible stands alone as as the word of god who knows the future i think that that's amazing i have to be encouraged by that i shared dr jeffrey's and uh, uh, amazing unveiling of his prophecy um, in Ezekiel, about the rebirth of Israel. Now, uh, it gets a little bit complicated, but I'll go slowly, and I'm sure you'll be able to follow me. The first thing we need to understand is that, that there are two prophets that we're going to talk about. Uh, Jeremiah, who is speaking about the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, and Ezekiel, who is speaking about the return of the Jews from the, from the worldwide diaspora. But they're connected, and I'll show you how they are connected as we go through this morning. Now, I know you guys are well up and, and know that in 1870, Titus came down and destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the, 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 the Jewish people all over the world. Everyone knows that in the Bible that there are prophecies saying that in the last days that the Jews are coming back to the land. How many know we're living in exciting prophetic times? The Jews have come back to the land. The clock is ticking. Jesus is coming back soon. We can be excited about that because he's coming back for his church. He's coming back to take us home to glory and honor. This is going to be absolutely wonderful. Praise God. So, okay, so now, we, now we're going to look at this, okay? Um, did you know that God prophesied the exact time that Israel would return to the land? The exact time. 
Very interesting. Not a general prophecy, and I'm going to show it to you as we go through this morning. And um, you're going to be blessed. Hallelujah. Praise God. Welcome. Praise God. Hallelujah. So, you know, there, there's always been, can, can somebody get a spare chair? Uh, <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, there, there's one behind Daniel. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Okay. So we're looking at this prophecy about the, the return of, uh, of Israel to the land after the second dispersion. Uh, dispersion okay? And it's very, very specific. There's always been a relationship in the Bible about how, um, how the scriptures and, and Israel relate to the Holy Land. Amen. Uh, you, you recall that when, when they went into, into the Egyptian captivity, God gave them a specific time that it would last. When, when they went into the Babylonian captivity, God gave them a specific time. In fact, it was 70 years. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. It says that, that, that they will be in captivity for 70 years. Now, let's do a little bit of, uh, a little bit of history to prove that the Bible is the most amazing and exciting book ever. I love it. Okay, so according to history and biblical uh, history, so secular and uh, the uh, and uh, biblical, uh, the Babylonian army conquered Israel in the spring of 606 BC, 600 years before the time of Christ. Uh, Israel was defeated, conquered, and carried, carried off uh, to Babylon, and they were in Babylon for how long? 70 years, absolutely. So when 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 was the time that they the, what was the date when they came out of captivity? So it's uh, six oh six minus seventy. Uh, you come to the date of five thirty six BC. I'm going to ask you uh, to to get out your your um, your phones because in a little while we're going to get into some some maths because it actually proves. And I, I I want you to give me the answers. So if you get, get get your calculators out, I don't trust your, your mental earth. <laughs> don't trust my own. But uh, turn to your calculator, and we're going to find some very interesting things as we go along. Okay. So, so the starting date is spring of 536 BC. The starting date is spring 536 BC. Will you say that with me? The starting date is spring 536 BC. Oh, that was pathetic. Oh, I know. <laughs> we need to get the brain going. Okay, let me say it again. Let's do it again. The starting date is spring 536 BC. Once more, the starting date is spring 536 BC. I'm going to ask you to remember that because we're going to come back to it. It's really important. And you need to know also that in the Bible that there were um, three prophets that lived uh, contemporaneously. They lived at the same time. And so that was Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. They all lived in the same time frame, and they all knew each other. Um, and so Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel would have been aware that Jeremiah said uh, at the end of 70 years, the Jews will go back uh, to Jerusalem. He was aware of that, but God showed Ezekiel an even greater revelation that looked much further into the future. Okay, it revealed how long it would take until the nation of Israel would be regathered uh, forever to be their own nation in the last days. We'll call that the rebirth of Israel. Okay, so you can find this prophecy uh, in, in Ezekiel chapter 4, 
verses 3 to 6. And it says this. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face towards it. It will be, it will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign. Notice that phrase. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. So God is actually foretelling the future. And it's a, it's a, a, an exercise of omniscience. God is telling the future when he's saying this. It goes on to say in verse 4, four Lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. Verse 5. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. 390 days. How many would like that job to lie on your side for 390 days? I think she could get quite mad in that time. 390 days he was supposed to lie on his side, one day for each year. It goes on. You will bear the sin of the house of Israel for 390 days. And after you finish this, you will lie down again, this time on your right-hand side, and bear the sins of the house of Judah. Whoa, more, more time. I've assigned you 40 days, for a day for each year. So the sign is if you add the, the 390 and, and the 40 days, you get 430 total years of God's judgment. Are you with me so far? Okay, right, okay. So 390 for the sins of Israel and 40 for the sins of Judah. Okay. This would be a total of 430 years of punishment. Uh, and the starting point again was spring of 536 BC for the worldwide regathering of the nation of Israel. It must be noted um, that only a handful of Jews returned from the captivity uh, of the of Babylonian captivity. In fact, uh, out of the whole nation, only 50,000, according to uh, 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 Nehemiah and uh, Ezra. So a, a real handful of people returned. The rest of the Jews stayed in exile. And if you think about it, they, they would be in an exile for 70 years. Okay? So those who could remember Jerusalem would be at least 70 years or older. Uh, in fact, if you remember it, you're going to be a lot older than 70 years of age. And they didn't relish the thousand kilometers back, going back to Jerusalem. That was the journey that they would have to take. Thousand kilometers at you know 70 plus years of age, and they're going back to Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and they're now going to have to start a brand new life. And so, how many are ready to go to Africa? You know, start a brand new life in Africa. Any volunteers? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <take it. laughs> so it's it's you know, you can understand the, the, the kind of mentality they have, they all. Elderly, sorry, they're elderly uh, and getting younger all the time. <laughs> and so uh, they, they didn't want to go back. And, uh, so they stayed where they were, the vast majority. They didn't re re return home. They lived in Babylon and became part of the pagan Persian Empire. Because soon after the Jews went back to Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the Persians came and invaded Babylon, overtook Babylon, and so the, the remnant that stayed behind became part of the, uh, the, the Persian Empire. Now, now, Persia was in control of Babylon. Okay. So, interesting. Remember God's judgment? 
was a, for a total of 430 years. Well, how much have they done so far? 70 years? Was, uh, and somebody say 70 years? That's all they did was 70 years in Babylon, okay? So how much time was remaining of God's judgment if they had 430? That was 360 years, right? Yeah. Okay. So they, they've done 70, but there's still 360 years of God's divine punishment still to do. So when you, when you study history, you'll notice that when the Jews returned, they didn't set up an independent country uh, at that time. In fact, nothing like that happened at all. And it's kind of amazing in the light of Ezekiel's prophecy, why nothing happened. It's a bit of a mystery. Nothing seems to have happened in the secular world or biblically. What, what's going on here? It's difficult to understand why there's a bit of a mystery. And maybe there's something more that we need to take into account when examining this prophecy. Both Bible and secular history reveal that uh, Israel as a nation did not repent of their sins at the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, the majority of the Jews served in pagan Babylon. Okay. They failed to repent for their disobedience, which was the very reason God sent them there in the first place. I mean, how dumb can you still be and breathe? You know? They didn't, they didn't get it. They stayed there. So there's something more to Ezekiel's timing for Israel's regathering in the end times. There's actually another divine principle that came into play with Ezekiel's prophecy. And it's found in Leviticus, the 26th chapter. Now, if I were to summarize Leviticus 26 for you, it would basically be this. Leviticus 26 is, uh, is God's promise uh, of blessings and, uh, and punishments, uh, depending on how Israel uh, obeyed or disobeyed. So there was promise or punishments uh, in, in Leviticus uh, 26. And we find the key verse found in uh, Leviticus 26, 18. Okay. This is what God says, and I'm reading it from the Amplified because it's the most clear. And if in spite of all this, you still do not listen to me and be obedient to me, then I will chastise you and discipline you seven times more for your sins. Whoa. Newsflash, don't mess around with God. Okay. So, please take out your phones. You've got your calculators ready. You're going to help me. Uh, okay, we're going, to, we're going to get into it. Are you clear with me so far? Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll go through it slowly. Okay. So, Israel had only served 70 of their 430 years. That means there were 360 years of punishments still left. Did Israel repent? No. So what did God say? I will punish you seven times more severely uh, if you don't repent. So now we've got our first uh, 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 little, little math problem. Okay, We've got uh, the, the 360 years and God says I'm going to punish you seven times more severely. So 360 times seven and your answer is? <laughs> Two thousand five hundred and twenty biblical years. I want to say biblical years because their calendar is different to our calendar. 
both the prophets and Israel operated on a lunar calendar. We operate on a solar calendar. Uh, and our calendar is how many days to our year? Uh, 0.225, uh, uh, because we have a leap year that we, we adjust for. So that, that's the rough calculation. Okay. Um, so we've got 360 years uh, times seven, because they never repented. That gives us 2,520 biblical years. Okay. So it's very interesting. And the reason, as I said, is because they use the lunar calendar, not the solar. Our solar calendar, as I, as I said, 365.24 days. So to convert the lunar calendar into a solar calendar, so that we can at least be operating on the same principle, you take 2,520 uh, the, the years and convert it to days, okay? So 2,520 times 360 days a year, okay? Die, you've got a PhD. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bit of <laughs> That's right. 907,200 lunar days. Okay. So now we've got lunar days. Now we need to adjust the lunar days to our days so that we, we can figure out what, what our time period is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Uh, therefore, uh, uh, Ezekiel is saying that uh, we, we, uh, there's a specific date when they're coming back. So we take the 907,200 lunar days and convert that to our calendar days by dividing 365.25 days. And if you do that, you'll get our solar equivalent. You'll get the time frame that Ezekiel was talking about in the Gregorian calendar. And the answer is, uh, actually, 2,483.77 or 0.8, just to be precise, okay, round it up. So, Ezekiel prophesied that the end of the worldwide diaspora would occur precisely 2,483.8 years after the Babylonian captivity ended. 2,483? 2,483.8. Years after the Babylonian captivity ended. Now, whenever you are moving between BC and AD, um, you have to make a correction uh, because there's no year zero. Okay, we didn't start out in year zero and have one year. There's no zero, it, it was just time. So if you're going from BC to AD, you have to correct by one year. If you're going backwards in time and you're going from AD to BC, you have to subtract one year, always. That's just, just the standard. It's just the way it is because there is no year zero. Okay. So if, if you bear that in mind uh, as we look at this prophecy, okay. can anybody remember when the starting point was? Spring of 536 BC. Now, BC means it was before Christ, right? So... That's minus, if we're going forward in time, it's minus 536. So if you put your into your phone and calculate it, minus 536 years BC, because it's before Christ, uh, and then add the 2483.8 years, our Gregorian calendar, we come to 1947.4.
We have to. 1947.4, yes. But we're moving forward in time. We're going from BC to AD. So what are we going to do? We're going to add one year because there's no year zero. So that becomes 1948, spring of 1948. Anybody know of anything significant that happened in the spring of 1948? Israel was born as a nation on the 15th of May, 1948. The regathering of the, the, the people of Israel forever and ever happened at exactly the time that the Bible prophesied. I think that's amazing. I'm excited because this shows that God knew the end from the beginning, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. God knows all. We can trust him. And we can look at so many, many different things. You know, that proves to me that the, the the Bible is an inspired document. You know, we could have looked at different things. We could have looked at the rise of world powers uh, mentioned in the book of Daniel. We could have looked at about Daniel, uh, uh, Alexander the Great is in the Bible. I don't know if you know that, but uh, he's in the Bible. King Cyrus uh, was spoken about 150 years before uh, before he actually came and what he would do. He's mentioned in the Bible. Well, it's spoken about cities that would be destroyed like Tyre and Sidon uh, all before it actually happened. All before it actually happened. There are a multiplicity of things that happened that God foretold would happen. And as we look back in history, we can tick them off and say, yes, that was correct. That was correct. God was right. God was right. The Bible is inspired. As we bring this to a close, okay. Um, you didn't know it was going to be a mass lesson today, did you? No, Sorry, I couldn't no. advertise on those. We don't know no, no one yet. Isaiah 42 in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That's the wisdom of God. That's how you know that the Bible is not an ordinary book. Can you say amen? It is amazingly accurate when it comes to fulfilled prophecy. Okay. Isaiah uh, 46 and verses 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old. I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. In other words, if God has said it, it's coming to, it's coming to pass. It doesn't matter what man does. God's word will prevail. Can you say amen? And so we see, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at medical science or whether you're looking at astronomy or astrophysics or, or any of the other things that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. We see that the Bible is a divinely orchestrated book. It's an amazing book that foretells the future before it happens. And it's telling us that Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is coming back very, very soon. I believe in my lifetime. That's how soon I believe Jesus is coming. Why? Because Israel's back in the land. 1948, they came back. Jesus said, the generation that sees us will see my return. So we know that we are living on the cusp of world-changing history when Jesus comes back for the church and we're going up into glory. We can trust the scriptures, whether it's medicine, whether it's astrophysics, or whether it's uh, uh, prophecy. God knows the beginning from the end. Praise God. Let's just bow our heads and all the
Father, we thank you that you are the omniscient one. Lord, you told us to get ready. Lord, the rapture is very close. And Lord, while this has been a teaching this morning, I don't often teach, but I love it when I have the opportunity to do so. Lord, I, I normally share, as you know, uh, messages of encouragement and exhortation. This is just a different, a slightly different take on the one you do. But Lord, I pray that uh, that your people would be encouraged this morning. I pray that they would look at their, their Bible with new eyes, that they would see the wisdom of God, that, that what you have spoken is truly not the sayings that have been written down by men, but truly are the word of God. Lord, so that we can take that on board and we know that you're coming back for your church many days soon. And so, Father, I, I lift my brothers and sisters into your presence, and I ask that you would bless them exceedingly abundantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Uh, we, we won't be doing any more of that kind of ministry for a little while. Uh, so, but it's important, isn't it? It's important from time to time just to go back and see why we believe. Um, and so uh, we've, we will be moving on to different areas of ministry uh, in the future uh, and um, something more specifically spiritual, <laughs> if you like. But I think it, I, and this is, comes from a, a course that I did in seminary. And uh, with all the stuff that we had in seminary, this course called Scientific Creationism was the thing that grounded me in the scriptures more than anything else. Suddenly, I saw that there was a God behind the scriptures.